So uh, some of you know that I'm hobbling around here and I'm sitting down because I'm having uh, a knee surgery in a, in actually now it's a month from today. So uh, about four weeks ago, I had this very interesting conversation with a surgeon that's going to be doing my surgery. He basically started to say to me that I have to be desperate for the surgery if I'm actually going to do it. He started to explain to me that, you know, if you are not desperate for this surgery, you probably shouldn't do it. And I thought that was kind of interesting because the, the 10 minutes before he was explaining to me why I need the surgery, he explains the situation with my knee, telling me that my knee's actually not going to get any better, that my quality of life is going to deteriorate over time. And so really the surgery is really the only option if I really want to walk again long term. But then suddenly he switched and he's telling me, you better be really desperate for the surgery. And I thought, you sound like you're trying to talk me out of the surgery after you talked me into the surgery. So I'm sitting there thinking, what are you doing right now? But as I listened to him, I began to understand a little bit more. He began to say to me that you're probably going to have more pain for the three months after surgery than you had the three months prior to surgery. Explain to me that I'm going to have to do a lot of physical therapy after surgery. So if you're getting the surgery thinking, I'll get off the operating table, boom, I'm back together, you're going to be pretty discouraged and disappointed because it's not going to get easier probably for three, four, five, six months later. He actually told me that it probably could be a year before I felt as good, like a totally out of the woods. And the bottom line he was saying is that you have to be desperate for the surgery if you're going to commit to the process that you have to go through to recover from the surgery. Probably a lot of you have experienced that, having surgeries, that it's just not, you're not done, but there's a commitment that you have to go to recovering after the surgery. And as he was talking to me, I thought, you know what, Christianity is a lot like having a total knee replacement or having your shoulder replaced or some other major surgery because it's going to take commitment and you're actually going to have to be a little bit on the desperate side if you actually decide you want to follow Jesus. Because to follow Jesus is a desperation to say, I actually need Jesus in my life because I have a lot of discomfort or pain or some kind of challenge in my life that I need Jesus to be on my side or Jesus to be with me to fulfill every single desire, the need that I have. And when you really think about it, Jesus spends a lot of time in the Gospels discouraging people to follow him. Now you might say, wait a minute, Jesus is always preaching. Yeah, he's preaching, but Jesus also spends a lot of time telling, discouraging people from following him. You think about it, there's story after story of Jesus preaching to the multiple of people, telling them about the kingdom of God, telling them how to live in obedience to God, telling them about what he's going to do for them, inviting them to live in the kingdom of God. But then you have several parts in the gospel where Jesus talks people out of following him. In the end of Luke 9, you have a man that walks up to Jesus and says, I want to be your follower. And what does Jesus say? He says, foxes have dens. Oh boy, I forgot. It's not good, Pastor. Bird, thank you. Foxes have nests, birds have foxes have dens, birds have nests, and the Son of God has no place to lay his head. Basically, Jesus says to this guy, You want to follow me? You might end up homeless. You might not have a place to live. The second guy walks up to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, uh, The guy says, I want to follow you, but I gotta I gotta quit, go home. My dad died, I gotta go to his funeral. And Jesus says, No. You're going to have to skip that funeral. Not that Jesus is against family, but Jesus is saying, you're going to have a different priority if you're going to start following me. The third guy comes up to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, that's great, but you know what? You're going to have to put me first in 
in your life. Time and time, Jesus tells these people how it's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult. Then we have the famous passage of the rich young ruler at the end of Matthew 19. He comes up to Jesus and says, I want to follow you. And Jesus looks at him and says, okay, you have to give away everything if you want to follow me. Basically, Jesus says to this guy, he says, you are going to have to give up anything that is going to come in between me and you. Time and time again, Jesus is preaching the gospel, and then Jesus is saying to people, do you realize it's going to cost you something? that you're going to have to give up something. You read these stories and you think, Jesus, why are you doing that? Jesus, why are you discouraging these people from following you? Because we often think that Jesus is desperate for people to follow him. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible tells us that Jesus isn't desperate for followers. It tells us that we need to be desperate to follow Jesus. The whole setup in the gospel is, are you desperate enough that you want to follow Jesus and surrender everything to him so he can do what he can, so as you surrender to him, you can live what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. See, Jesus wants us to realize that he is the answer for us. We're not the answer for Jesus. See, so often in our American culture, we think our greatest asset is our ability to achieve things on our own. If we can do it on our own, then we are successful, we are prospering, and we're all happy. But the message of the Bible is that we all have this huge inability to make something good out of our life. And that we have a desperate need to have Jesus in our life if we want to see reconciliation and restoration and wholeness in our life. So for the last four or five weeks, we've been talking about these core longings, these core needs that God has put inside of every one of us. Every one of us has a desire to connect with God in a way that we often are not even aware of. We call these core longings, core desires, core needs. Some people talk about seven core longings, some 12, some 13. The bottom line is there are things that only God can do in our life, and we need to be seeking him to meet these needs, not trying to have these met on our own. We need to understand that God wants these, meets these needs. Otherwise, we're going to spend our entire life trying to meet these needs on our own. So I've been talking about these seven core needs. They're in your notes. If you're watching online, they're in the sermon outline, which is in, uh, you can find that on our, our, our homepage or on our Facebook link notes. But we all have these, this one book, Free to Thrive. I, I've been using these seven core needs simply because it's a good book, and I thought if you want to read a good book, here's a good book on core needs. But they talk about we all have a need for acceptance or assurance or affirmation or attention or access or to affection or appreciation. And these longings have to be met in us. God created us to need these seven core longings. And if we don't find them met by God, we're going to look to get them met in some unhealthy ways. That's where a lot of our patterns or unwanted behavior comes in when we're trying to have needs met by things we can do or other people can do that only God can meet for us. That's why we're spending so much time talking on these because we're in this series talking about Jesus wants to meet our core needs and it's overlapping with the Advent season. So the need that we're going to talk about today is the need for access. Some of these people call it the need for availability. And basically what that is is that God created in us a desire or a longing to know that we are important, to know that we are valuable. From the time that we are born, we need to feel valuable. 
We need somebody to pay attention to us. We need as little kids knowing that we have access to our parents, that we have access to our caregivers, that we have access to adults in our life. We all know what it's like to be around little kids. We just experience that. But we see that even if you have kids, you know how much comfort your kids have knowing that they have access to you, that when they talk to you, you'll put down your book or your paper or your phone and you'll listen to them and you'll focus on them. When we do that for little kids, it makes them feel important. It makes them feel valuable that mom or dad or aunt or uncle or neighbor or friend is actually willing to put down their phone when they talk to them so they can listen to them. Little kids crave that. If kids don't get that interaction from adults, they're going to wonder, what's wrong with me? Is there something wrong with me that you're not going to pay attention to me, that you'd rather watch TV than talk to me? Or later on, they're going to think the same thing about God. If the parents and the family and friends aren't paying attention to kids, they're going to think God's the exact same way. But that need to have access to people in your life that are going to love you and see you, that doesn't go away when you age. We have that same need the older we get. We just look for it to be met in different ways sometimes. But we have that need for other people to notice us, to listen to us, to drop what they're doing, to listen, to, to be with us. That's part of the reason we go to Covenant House, to show people that you're worthwhile, that you're valuable, that we want to be with you, that Sally's going to shop all over Grand Rapids to find prizes that you're going to want to win because we're showing people that we love you, but you have access to us. We want to be there for you. And so part of that need for access, yeah, other people can help facilitate that need, but bottom line, we need to know that we have access to God. We need to know that so often in our life we think God loves everybody but tolerates me. We think God loves everybody but he won't love me until I get my act really cleaned up. But the message of the Bible is that God loves you all the time. The message of Christmas, the message of Advent is in that little manger is a loving God that wants to be with you and do things for you. And the message of Advent is through Jesus. You always have access to God. That you are never blocked from a relationship with God if you're a follower of Jesus. That message of Advent is we have access to God. And But so often we think, oh man, there's too many hard things going on in my life. My life's too difficult. Today we're talking about joy. It's the third Sunday of Advent. And when we talk about joy, some of you are excited. Some of you love Christmas. You love presents. You love all things about Christmas. But some people, you're like, eh, not so much. I really don't like being alone during the holidays. I really don't have many family or friends, and I kind of just feel more isolated when it's Christmas time. It can be a difficult time of year for some people. And a lot of people, you just have a lot of pain or a lot of loss in your life this year. And you're like, I just don't feel like celebrating. So often we kind of have the idea that pain has to be out of my life for me in order for me to really enjoy Christmas. That if God would just like get rid of this pain, get rid of this prayer request, get rid of this anxiety that's going on, then I will be able to enjoy Christmas. But that's not necessarily the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God will give you joy and peace in the midst of really hard things that are going on in your life. I love how Dan Allender says it in his book, The Healing Path. He says, healing is not the resolution of our past. It is the use of our past to draw us into deeper relationships with God for his purposes for our life. I think that's just beautiful. 
our hard things in life don't automatically have to go away for us to enjoy, enjoy life or have peace. Instead, what God does is he takes these painful things into our life to draw us into a deeper relationship with him. And that's the beautiful reminder of Advent, that it doesn't matter how much pain or suffering you have, God can give you joy in the midst of it. So the question we ask this time of year often when we do a message like this is, where do you find joy? How do you find joy? And so it's Christmas, we all know the answer is in the manger, little baby Jesus, that's joy. But there's another word that goes along with joy, and that's the word grief. Often we don't put the words joy and grief together, but I said it last year, I'll say it again this year, I think we should have Christmas ornaments that say joy and grief, because so often the two go together. So often you don't experience any joy without having experienced some grief in your life. Grief's difficult, but it often produces joy in our life. We even see Jesus, when we look into the manger, we're reminded that Jesus is a baby that would be, as the scripture says, a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. In that little manger is there's grief and there's joy. And when they come together, it's going to produce joy. So for the last month or so, I've been encouraging all of you to ask the question of what does God want to give you for Christmas? Specifically saying, what does God want to do in your life this season? What does he want to give you? What does God want you to be aware of in your life? I think that's a good question to ask because God is always up to something in all of our lives. And I think sometimes it's important to sit back and say, God, what are you specifically doing in my life that I need to be aware of? Because when I'm aware of what God's doing in my life, I can be an active participant in it. So I've been encouraging people to read Ephesians 1 where it says that God's desire is to, bring, to give each of us wholeness and holiness. We all know that God is actively working to bring us those two characteristics in our life. And sometimes we wonder, how is this all going to happen? I think as much as we ask God, what are you doing in my life? It's good to ask him sometimes some hard questions. We go back to the story of Mary. I love the story of Mary where God comes to her and says, you know, Mary, you're going to give birth to a son, and this is going to be his name. And I love the fact that she's like, sure, let's do it. And then she follows up with a question, which I think is brilliant, is how is this going to happen? I love that question because so often we get an idea of what God's going to do, and then we think, okay, it's up to me to see that happen. It would have been pretty easy for Mary to say, okay, you want this to happen? I probably should go out and find a man to make this happen. No. She had the courage and the boldness to say, how is this going to happen? And that's a brilliant question, and I love the angel's response to her. He said, this is going to happen because God is going to overshadow you. All throughout the scripture, we see the story of a God that overshadows And that's comforting to me because when we talk about what is God doing in your life, we have the confidence to know that God is hovering over you. This whole theme of God hovering over you is from the beginning of Scripture when God hovered over the chaos of the world and brought an order. We see it to Mary. We see several times where God hovers over his people. And during Advent, when life is hard and when life is difficult and we feel lonely and upset, we have the confidence to know that God is hovering over you. That no matter what your situation is, if it's happy or if it's tearful, it's joyful, God is hovering over you. 
That by the power of his spirit, he's not only leading you and guiding you and directing you, but he's going to bring you joy. And he's going to bring you peace in ways that you did not imagine. For the last two Christmases, I brought up the passage from James 1, verse 2 and 4. I'm bringing this up again. It was actually literally a year ago, one day off, that I preached part of this message. Because I think James 1, verse 2 and 4 is an incredibly important verse for us to understand as we go into the Christmas season, as if we understand joy. It's a unique verse that sometimes we read this verse and we kind of skip over it thinking, That's, that doesn't make any sense. Sometimes the verses that don't make the most sense are the verses, the verses you need to dive into a little bit. So in James 1, verse 2 through 4, James says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete and lacking nothing. That seems like a pretty strange verse especially when you consider who James is writing the verse to. He's writing it to the early church in the Roman Empire, and this church is basically experiencing so much persecution, they're getting in trouble for following Jesus, that these people are having to leave their homes. And James says, consider it a joy. You're like, that doesn't seem like very good pastoral care. To say, Consider it joy. So a lot of times we read this verse and we're like, that doesn't make sense. How do you consider it joy? When you're being persecuted, you're having to leave your home. You count it joy? No, that's terrible. That's a hard thing to go through in your life. So sometimes we read this verse and then we think that the Bible's saying, just ignore your problems. Pretend like they don't exist. Just focus on Jesus and ignore the hard things in your life. But this verse isn't saying that. It's not saying ignore your problems. It's actually saying quite the opposite. See, James has two goals here. Number one, he wants the people that are reading this letter to understand that the various trials that they are going through is actually going to produce some stability in their life. He wants them to know that God's going to work through these trials to give you stability. And he also wants you to know that at some point, the trials that you are experiencing will become very insignificant when you compare it to the joy that God's going to bring in your life. That's why he says to consider it all joy when you go through various trials. James isn't saying ignore your trials. He's saying you're going to be encouraged through your trials. Let me explain. But before I explain what he means by that, I need to explain the word various. Or in the scripture where it says many trials. Other translations say various trials. That's a very good word to understand if we're really going to unpack the fullness of this verse. So James says, consider it all joy, my friends, when you meet various trials or many trials. Now that word various in the Greek means various. It means many. And that's important to realize because James isn't limiting what kind of trial or what kind of temptation that you're going through. He says whatever you're going through, anything, big, small, large, medium, in between, anything that is difficult for you, anything that is a trial like that, God's paying attention to you. See, so often in our church culture, we sometimes think, well, that's a really big prayer request. We'll pray for that one. That's kind of little insignificant. We can ignore that. James is saying, don't do that. 
Don't think that prayer request is more important than that prayer request. They're all important to God. Whatever trial you're going through, whatever situation you're going through, they're all important to God. I mean, have you ever been in a prayer meeting and they're asking for prayer requests and you think, I can't bring that up. That's kind of insignificant. James says, don't do that. You bring all your requests before God. You let God know every trial, every hardship that is going on in your life. God wants to know. See, that verse is important to understand because that verse is saying is this. It says you have access to God for every single situation that's going on. See, so often we think, oh, I only have access to God for really super big prayer requests, not the little ones. The little ones I try to figure out on my own. I'll bring him the big ones like when I'm close to death. James says, don't do that. You have access to God through every single thing that's going on in your life that's a little bit challenging. So that sets up the verse, to know that James is speaking to every single person, not just the person really a hard life right now. The second thing that he says is to consider it a joy. Some translations will say, count it all joy. Now you read that and you think, that's just not very good pastoral care. I mean, how do you say to a person who just got a bad diagnosis at a doctor, consider it a joy? How do you can say it to a person who their child has just done some self-harm or committed suicide? You don't say to them, consider it pure joy. That's not what the Scripture's saying. The Scripture's not saying to ignore it. Instead, what the Scripture's saying is that God's going to do something in your life through a hardship, through a difficult situation that you probably don't expect to actually happen. See, this verse is not being insensitive at all. This verse is being extremely compassionate. See, this verse isn't so much a commandment of something you need to do. Instead, it's a promise of what God's going to do in your life. See, this verse isn't a commandment. It's a promise. So what does it mean when James says to consider a pure joy or count it a joy? See, the Greek word for uh, consider is a word, Greek word hagalmai. It's a significant word in the Greek. It's actually an accounting term. It's an accounting term that means to add it all up. For example, you've done an Excel spreadsheet, you'd say, add it up, column A. Back in the Greek, hagalmai, column A. See, what James is telling the people to do, he's not saying ignore your problem. He's saying write your problems down. He says, I want you to keep track of your problems. I want you to go to an accounting spreadsheet and I want you to make a list of every hard thing, every challenging thing, every difficult thing, every financial burden you have, every time you've been mistreated, write all of them down. Add them up. That's going to be a pretty big number. But James is encouraging you to do that. But he's also encouraging you in another column to write all the ways that God's blessed you all the ways God's provided for you, all the ways that God's taken care of you, all the ways that God's rescued you, all the ways God's brought you joy, all the way God's brought you peace. He says you add up that column too. And then this is the promise in the verse. The promise in this verse is this column is always going to be greater than that column. This verse is a promise that God is always going to make sure that you have more blessings, you have more joy, you have more peace, then you do have hardships or difficulties. And I know there are times, it seems like this list is winning. 
Some of you right now, you're probably going through something where it does seem like this list is winning. But see, this is where God promises you. He said, this list is always going to be bigger. You keep trusting in me, keep following me, keep obeying me, keep doing what I call you to do, and you're going to see that this list is always bigger. That's why God says you can count it all joy. Because he's saying when you add up everything in your life, that list is always going to be bigger. That's a significant promise that God makes in his word. That he is going to bless you more than you experience loss. He's going to encourage you more than you're going to experience defeat. That's why God gives us access to him. That's why we, we celebrate the manger, that we have access to God, because we know when things are hard or difficult, we automatically have access to go right to God and have every single need met in our life. But what's not only just beautiful about this promise is most of us are not keeping track of all the hard things in our life, and we're not keeping track of all the good things going on. But God is. God's doing perfect accounting of your life. If he's going to make a promise, he's going to keep a promise, which means he's going to have to have a lot of Excel spreadsheets going on in heaven to keep track of your life. We may forget about the bad things. We may forget about the good things, but God can't forget about those things because he's faithful to do what he promised to do. So God's busy, very busy, keeping track of the hard things in your life to make sure you always get more joy. To make sure you always get more blessings. To make sure you always get more peace. And so this time of year we celebrate joy and you're feeling like, I don't have much joy. You can know that for Christmas God's going to give you more joy. He's going to give you more peace. He's going to give you more resolution to the hardships in your life. And he is going to be faithful to lead you in the path of restoration and wholeness and holiness because he is faithful. He has to do it. God can't make a promise and not keep it. That's, what, that's why he gets to be God. Because he keeps track of these things. So when Scripture says, count it all joy, that's an invitation for you to say, yeah, this is hard right now. This is difficult right now, but I know that God is going to be more faithful. And that's why we go to God in prayer. We go to God in prayer and confidence because we know He answers prayers. Even though we don't always get them answered exactly how we want, He's faithful that He's always going to bring us more joy and peace in our life. And that's the confidence we go into this season. We go because James continues in verse 3 and says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. That's another promise from God. Testing doesn't mean testing like a test in school that you pass or fail. Testing is like the testing of metals, which it means it's going to remove impurities. God says, oh, you go through these hardships in your life, it's going to remove impurities from your life. And you're going to be better off as you go through it. Oh, it's going to be difficult, but you're going to see the benefit of impurities removed. And then James closes it in verse 4, and he says, And let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. That's what God wants us to do as we go through this accounting exercise, is to recognize that we lack nothing. 
I think that's part of what God wants to do for us for Christmas. To give us contentment, to know that we lack nothing. Mm-hmm.